not gratify the desires of the flesh. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So up to this point in the letter to the Galatians, Paul has been addressing a few things in particular. Most notably, he's been seeking to answer the question of who it is that forms part of God's covenant, and how it is that that comes about. One of the major issues addressed in this debate has been the role of what's referred to as the works of the law. And what Paul's teaching essentially boils down to is this, being Jewish is not required to be part of God's family. Before it was necessary to keep the law, that is circumcision, food laws, Sabbath laws, etc., but now this is no longer binding. Rather, what is required now is faith in the person of Jesus, and this is the badge or the marker, if you will, that gives you entrance into the covenant. But as we've seen in other places, like Romans, for example, um, this transition from old covenant to new isn't quite as easy and it has not gone quite as smoothly as one might have hoped for. This was both a common accusation against Paul as well as something that he witnessed himself on the ground in many pastoral contexts. And that is the tension that now seems to be created when the old moral standard, that is the law, is done away with. And that is so that in response to Paul's teaching, you get this tension between an insistence from the Jews on the one hand to continue with the law, and then on the other hand, a certain licentiousness or libertinism. In less fancy words, we might just say the idea that freedom for the law means all things that I do are permissible. I can do whatever I want. And this is what we see as Paul's response to this debate in Galatia in chapter 5. And what Paul is advocating for is a third way. It's not to continue to follow Torah on one side, nor is it to give free reign on the other side, and nor is it some combination of the two that exists somewhere in the middle between the two. We might say that it, that it exists on a different plane entirely, and that is what Paul refers to as walking by the Spirit. That is, to live your life guided and directed by the Holy Spirit who resides in your heart. And living this way, according to Paul, is what puts to death the works of the flesh. Now, okay, I feel like it's at this point that you kind of have to stop and say, that with Christian language, and oftentimes even with Christian practice, this gets a little bit weird. Meaning that we hear this language a lot. It gets thrown around in the church living life according to the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. But I think the reality is that most of us don't have any idea what that means, myself included. But this, is, but this language is so common, and it's such a common part of the larger group, that we just continue to use it, and we continue to act as though we know what it means, when the reality is most of us at best are probably confused. And I say us, I put myself in that category as well. It's a difficult thing to discern. I found personally in my own journey that it's easier to discern what living by the Spirit is not than what then being able to say positively what it is. That, though that's not to say that we can't say some things positively about it. What it's not though, and though this is not explicitly stated, but oftentimes it's portrayed in the church, 
What living by the Spirit is not is simply living your life and judging your life according to your present emotional state. So that is to say that living according to the Spirit is not merely then you taking whatever emotions, whatever desires you presently have, and attributing those automatically to God. Life according to the Spirit is not some sort of uncritical or unevaluated experience of life with no discernment, with no sense of correction or change to your desires or emotions. I think that the closest that I've been able to get to with this in my own journey is probably the simple idea of conscience. I think it was John Henry Newman who said that the conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ the soul. So aboriginal vicar, vicar means representative of Christ. So the first representative of Christ, the soul, is the conscience. Life led by the Spirit, I believe, is the ongoing discernment of that particular voice now that it has received the gift of the Spirit. So ongoing discernment to that particular voice and living life directed primarily by what we know God is calling us to do, and that over and against what we might desire. It's the ongoing journey of learning to figure out how to come to do and to practice the good for its own sake, and not because of anything that we might receive from it. And we can say, too, that whatever life according to the Spirit looks like, um, one thing that we can say definitively is that it is rooted in and flows out of our prayer. It's in our life of prayer where our hearts are shaped and formed to do what it is that God is calling us to. And another thing that Paul tells us here definitively about life according to the Spirit is that this life is one that will be marked by virtue and not by vice. And this is why Paul continues on and he gives this um, helpful qualification of what life according to the Spirit versus life according to the flesh looks like as he enumerates these different lists, lists of works of the flesh versus fruits of the Spirit. Now, there would be a lot to say here on these two lists, but I'll limit myself to just a few things. The first is that it seems that people have tried to classify or organize these lists in different ways over the years. But it appears that there isn't really a particular order or means of classification, except for one thing. According to the way that um, these kind of virtue and vice lists were actually typical in Paul's day, And according to the way that they were typically done, what appears notable is what each one of these lists begins with. And it's likely that Paul saw these two as the most significant. So these would be sexual immorality on the flesh list and love on the spirit list. The sexual life of the Greco-Roman world was chaotic, to say the least. And in many ways, though not exactly the same, we see similarities in our world today. And the reason why I think Christians saw it so important to right away speak out against the sexual immorality that it saw in the Greco-Roman world was because of the way that the church believed that sex detracts from love, which is why I think that both have first place on these respective lists. So not to mention Paul's own teaching on the distinctiveness of sexual morality as a sin against one's own body, per 1 Corinthians. But here he's making a direct connection, I think, or a dichotomy, 
with sexual immorality on the one hand and love on the other, because of the way that the former takes away from the latter. And even though the church has been accused of such, I don't believe that the church is against sex, but rather it says that it needs to be sought in its proper context, which is the love of the marital union of man and woman. Anything outside of this would fall into what Paul is speaking here, and I think Paul sees it as so grave, so serious, because, as I said, he believes it detracts from love. Now, I don't have the time to speak about all the things listed here, but it seems to me that the common thing that brings these vices together, idolatry, strife, anger, etc., perhaps is the self-centeredness that underlies them. They are all inward-looking. They're all concerned primarily with the self and fulfilling the self's desires. And then the same thing, but the opposite with the virtues or the fruits of the Spirit, love, kindness, gentleness, etc. Paul does not tell us exactly what this looks like or exactly how these are to work themselves out in our lives. But the underlying theme is how they look outwards. They look beyond the individual towards the greater good of the other. It's the proper orientation, which is not a denial of oneself, but rather the view from which we can choose the good of the other over and against our individual needs. You know, as we venture on this journey and we try to figure out just what the heck it means to live life according to the Spirit, we come to realize, I think, something crucial in the war of the flesh versus the Spirit which we confront on a daily basis. We come to learn simply that life with God is better. Meaning, at first, we experience the moral boundaries of Christianity to be mere rules. Perhaps we even see that they're put in place simply to kill the party. But then we realize that the moral boundaries are actually for our good as we grow, as we deviate a little bit and we experience a little bit of what is beyond those moral boundaries, we realize that, oh yeah, that was actually better. What, what God taught was actually better, was actually for my good. And we come to realize that the moral boundaries, whatever you think about being saved from hell in the future, that's a, that's a different conversation. I think more arguably, though, or more important, arguably, is that the moral boundaries save us from hell now, in the sense that they save us from the hell of slavery. We realize that the things we supposedly get to do outside of the church, we don't get to do them, but we have to do them. That is, we realize that we're held captive to them. We hold so tightly onto these things, and we think that it is us who are holding onto them and choosing them, but they are holding onto us and choosing us. And they're killing us. And as we mature in the Spirit, we realize that none of it, none of these things outside compares, for as much as they might promise to do so, nothing compares to knowing God and being known by Him. And nothing is worse than the separation from him which sin brings. As St. Paul says in chapter 5, you were called to freedom, 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.